you might have moved on, but I'm still in the place of relationships. And we've talked for a number of weeks about all these different aspects of relationships. And today we're going to talk about humility. And it turns out I don't think you can talk about humility without talking about pride. But if there was any foundational thing to really everything Christian, I think it's humility. And hopefully you'll see that. I pray that today's message, and every one of us can get to a deeper place of humility. Every one of us has pride that needs to die inside of us. So there's nobody here, would be my guess, that can't benefit to some extent from being more humble. But that needs to be our prayer, is that God would sow in us, and he will, humility. Interestingly, from my early time, some of you might argue I'm still early time as a Christian, but from my earliest time as a Christian, (laughs) people, you know, you talk about humility and they'd say, oh, don't pray for humility. Or the other one, there was always two that I heard, patience and humility. Don't pray for those because God will give them to you if you ask, but it's no fun on the way there. And the reality is that it's not altogether great fun, the path from pride to humility. But my goodness, that is a virtue that we absolutely have to have if we have any hope of demonstrating the kingdom, any hope of being Christ-like at all, it's humility. And we need to ask God for it, okay? So in that vein, let's start with, this has nothing to do with humility, but it's a scripture that I think we need to recognize as we commit ourselves to this path of humility. Psalm 119 and verse 105 says, Your word, speaking to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So if we ask God to illuminate our path, then we need to walk down the path that he lights up for us, right? Right. Okay, so let's take a minute and let's define pride and humility. Because pride is kind of a four-letter word in the church, and for good reason, and humility is not. But there's, there's pride that's not sinful pride. There's pride that is, I'm proud of my sons. There's, there's pride like that that's not a sin. The pride that is a sin, the pride that caused Satan to be cast, or Lucifer at the time, Lucifer to be cast out of heaven, the pride that caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the garden is a pride that exalts itself above God. It's a pride that puts self in the place of God. That's the pride, when you see pride is bad in the Bible, that's the pride that scripture is talking about. The pride that would exalt self above God. The pride that would steal God's glory for me versus his glory being his. Because remember, if it's true that every good thing and every perfect gift comes from heaven, comes from the Father, the God of lights and his throne, then no good thing we have had really anything to do with us, right? And Jesus says we can't produce any fruit unless that he abides in us. We abide in him that he might abide in us. So any good thing that we've done is a result of God's blessing and God's anointing. So that pride that would exalt itself above God is the pride that we're talking about. That pride that would cause me to take the place, right? That's what Lucifer tried to do in heaven. He was the angel's angel. He was the the baddest cat in God's valley. And he saw himself as God. And he wanted to be worshipped as God. As a matter of fact, when he came to tempt Jesus, what did he try to get Jesus to do? Bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me. Treat me as God. And I'll give you all these kingdoms that you see because they'd been given to him. Who gave them to him? Adam gave them. 
in his disobedience, in his pride towards God. He gave all that to Satan. Jesus got it back. Okay. If pride is the most grievous sin, then humility has got to be the highest virtue of a Christian. Because humility is the, is the virtue, it's the characteristic of Christ that causes us to go low. It causes us to be emptied of ourselves that we might be full with God. It's the virtue that allows exaltation to happen. Exaltation outside of humility is very, very dangerous because it breeds pride. It breeds self. And, and self can never hold up the weight that God needs us to hold up as his church. So the only way to be exalted and, and be effective in that exaltation is to go low. The kingdom is upside down from the world, right? In the world, the smart guy, the talented guy, the fastest runner, the one that can hit the baseball the farthest is exalted in, in, the, in the eyes and the minds of men. But in the kingdom, it's the one that will go lowest is the one that God will exalt to the place that's highest because that person in their high place will not take God's glory. In humility, they'll understand they're there because he placed them there and, and that all the glory that would be directed to them would be sent up. I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you last week, but a couple Thursdays ago, the youth kids went to a Christian concert down in um, Ypsilanti and they had a big stage like this, but they also had like a runway stage that went out into the, the floor area of the crowd and one of the guys of one of the bands was a very, um, he was a performer. You know, I mean, he was a dancer and he was dressed to the nines and everything. And he went out to the end of that thing and all these young people came and congregated around him and he got down on his knees like this and they all had their hands out. And he was putting his hands out because they wanted to touch him. They wanted to touch him. And that's a, that is such a bad thing that we would exalt celebrity. I don't know, I don't know the deficiency in, in each one of those kids person that thought that somehow if they could just get a hand, if that guy just touched me, then I'm better than the one he didn't get to touch. He's just a guy. God blessed him with a voice. He could sing and a really cool, you know, entertaining talent that he could, he could entertain you and really engage you well. And I'm not even saying the guy was doing it for his own edification, but you could see the influence of pride, the spirit of pride that would draw that guy down and feed that thing that those poor kids had that wanted to just touch celebrity. It's really scary. Our identity should not be found in somebody else's gift or somebody else's thing or, or somebody else's fame. It needs to be found in Christ and what he says about us. All right. We talked about it at the new church. We're going to build a crane so that when I get down on my knees, no one has to get up and carry me back to my feet. If I don't stay there too long, I do okay. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about humility in relationship, <laughs> in relationship to relationships. There's a few scriptures I want to share with you, and I want you to see how God speaks of humility when he talks about relationships. Now, now some of these are kind of specific relationships, and other ones are just kind of in general context. The first one we'll talk about is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8a. And James says to people that are struggling in their relationships, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, that you wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know Pardon me, that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So here's these people. James is writing to the church in general. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he's saying, look, you're having all these quarrels and these fights. And he even talks about things like murder and envy. And he said, the reason for all that is because you're exalting yourself above other people. You're lusting. You're, you're wanting what other people have. And because you're feeling less than, because maybe they have what you don't, you're creating all these problems. He says, um, to make yourself a friend of the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. So that pride that causes you to desire things that God hasn't ordained for you to have, at least maybe not at that moment, is causing you to be an enemy of God as a friend of the world. And then he says at the end that he is opposed to the proud. Remember we talked about with um, Brandon and how tough it was to reconcile love towards a guy that would do the kind of things that he's been accused of doing. And that I think God understands if we struggle with that, but I don't think he understands if we choose not to love a brother in Christ because we're judging him for what he did. So if we say, God, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to follow you down almost every path that you lead me, but I'm not going down this one because it's just not right then you'll find that you will struggle with that and struggle with that and struggle with that. And the reason is because he is not going to embrace pride. Pride exalts itself against God. God says, you've got to love that guy. Pride says, I'm not going to. And there's no grace to get you to that place. Nobody loves somebody that kills a child except for by the grace of God. If you don't humble yourself and ask God to help you, then that grace isn't going to come and you're not going to find yourself in that place of being able to do that which he asks you to do. The last point I want to make about this one is he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I hope every one of us gets more and more and more near to God experiences because I think without the experience of God, it's very difficult for us to love God. And if we don't love God, we're not going to obey him properly. We need those experiences. When, when Teresa and I were in Africa that summer, there was our mission school. We were there for, I don't know, three or months, I think it was, June, July, and August. And we were in a mission school. Every day we were in school. We went on outreaches. It was amazing. There was a pastor school. They planted like 8,000 churches in Mozambique, Iris Ministries has. And they literally walk into these villages. They share Jesus. People get miracles. They get saved. And they, they look around and say, which one, Holy Spirit? And he's like, that one right there. And they say, you know, whatever the guy's name is, you're going to be the pastor of the church that we're going to plant in this village. And then they go get him and they bring him to Bible college. I mean, he, he met Jesus five minutes ago, but he's the one. So they, they had these pastors. They have one first, second, and third year of what they call Bible college. And they bring them, they go into trucks, and they get them from all over the countryside of Mozambique, and they bring them in for Bible college. Well, some of our sessions were with the Mozambican pastors. And um, 
you know, we just got the same teaching together. And one time they told us the night before to come with a tub, like a plastic tub and water, that we were going to wash the Mozambican pastor's feet. Now, some of these feet, I'm telling you, have never seen shoes in their whole entire... You know, don't you, Harold? Harold ministered in the Philippines and Thailand. These guys never had a pair of shoes on their feet in their life. They're as nasty a feet as you're ever going to see. And they got these guys, and they set them all around this cement platform thing they had, and then they had us go and wash their feet. I never, you've, you've seen me weep before the Lord a lot. I have never wept before the Lord like I did then. And, and my weeping is never sadness. It's always God's presence. It's always God's joy. It overwhelms me to the point where that's just what comes out of me. I've never felt closer to God than when we were washing the feet of these Mozambican pastors, when we humbled ourselves, right? He says that he gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. When he offers you a place of humility and you accept it, you can be certain that you are going to meet God in a way that you probably have never met him before. Humility and connection to God go hand in hand. Okay, the next one that's a relationship-based scripture is very similar. This one is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7. through 7. Now he's talking about, or he's speaking to younger men. So he's speaking to the church, this is Peter now, and there's elders and there's deacons and there's all these different people that are in the church and there must be some kind of relationship issues where the younger guys, right? The younger guy wants to be the older guy before he's ready to be the older guy. He wants to have that place before God's necessarily developed that character in him. So that, that's what I think Peter is addressing in this course of scripture. He says, you young men, likewise, be subject to your elders, all of you, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So there must have been some sense of anxiety, some anxiousness that these younger men were feeling in the church. And he was saying, submit yourself to these older guys, these guys with more experience, more wisdom, that that God has had more time to sow into. Humble yourself, clothe yourselves with humility, put on this garment, this robe that is humility. Live your life this way in your relationship with them that God might exalt you, lift you up when you've found that place of humility and you're prepared. Their relationship wasn't good. Humility was going to fix their relationship and it was ultimately going to get them what it was they were looking for. The third one relative to relationship that speaks to humility is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It says, uh, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So again, in relationships with other people, wrapped in humility, our first order of business ought to be the other person. If always the other person is our first order of business, our relationships will always be excellent. Because it's very difficult for a selfish person to take advantage of a humble person. They will for a time, because there's a spirit that wants to be fed. But humility is like love. It overwhelms bad spirits. So clothing ourselves with humility, considering others more important than ourselves, not looking out only for our own interests, but the interests of others, is what drives us to intimate relationships that last, that bear fruit. Okay, this is going to be a really long one, but it's an excellent story. An example of real life in the Bible, how God treats 
pride and humility. So as I read this course, the second course of scripture, I want you to look for pride and humility in here. Um, and I'll set it up with Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. So when we, when we pick ourselves up, when we exalt ourselves to a high place, especially as Christians, God's going to humble us. He's going to bring us down because we're not ready to be in that place yet. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So as we humble ourselves, as we find humility, God raises us up. Okay, so this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, God has, Israel has gone to God and said, we want a king. We don't have a king. All the other nations have a king and we don't have a king. We need to have a king. And God said, that's not my plan for you. My plan was not for you to have a king. I should be your king. I'll give you these people I call judges, and they'll help you to deal with your day-to-day kind of stuff, but it's not my best for you to have a king. But they continue to whine and to cry and, and tell God, no, 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 we need to be like the other guys. We've got to have a king. So God gave him a king, and the very first king of Israel was this guy named Saul. Saul has been anointed king by God, and he's been given instructions by God. Has, have any of you seen the movie One Night with the King, the story of Queen Esther, Right? At the beginning of that story, they show this evil guy that, that doesn't get killed. And remember, his descendant is, I forget his name, Haman, is it? His, his descendant is the guy that actually is trying to cause all these problems for the Jews in where Queen Esther is. Thank you, Persia. Okay, so you're going to see that guy in this story. So God, in uh, chapter 15, verse 3 of 1 Samuel, God, through Samuel, says, Now go and strike Amal. Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. If you fast forward now to verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And, there were not, and, they, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So they kept the good stuff, right? The livestock, the really good livestock. But the not so good, they killed it. All the people, they did what they were told, except they didn't kill the king. Um, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Saul, saying, Saul, come to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded to go on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Now this is Samuel the prophet speaking to Saul. Speak, Samuel said, it is not true, or is it, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the soil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on a mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So, Saul was anointed king over Israel, first one ever. And Samuel, when he was sharing with Saul, Saul said, I did everything I was told to do. I went out, I defeated these guys. I even did better than what God told me to do because we saved some of these really good animals that we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. And, and for whatever reason, I'm not sure it was, we didn't kill the king. Saul, Samuel said to Saul, when you were little in your eyes, you were made king. Little in your eyes is humble. See, when, when Saul was made king, when he was anointed king by God, he couldn't see any way that he could be king. He was little in his own eyes. A man that's little in his own eyes is the perfect one to be king because he'll, he'll rest on God. He'll lean on God for everything that he needs to do. But now Saul's been king for a little while and he's starting to figure that he's king and he's got some stuff. And in the process of that pride, he goes off and disobeys God. And this story teaches a second truth, and that is we would say that 90%, if I did 90% of what God told me to do, I was obedient. But 1% disobedience equals disobedience. God expects absolute obedience. Now, we live in the covenant of grace, right? So you're not necessarily judged by your disobedience, but your blessing is found in obedience, and your lack of blessing is found in disobedience. So what Saul did was get exalted when he was little in his own eye, and then he was rejected when he became large in his own eye. And he took over for God and made a decision for how things were going to get done. Do you see the, the humility and the pride in the story? It's how God deals with things. He gives us commands, he teaches us how to live, and when we don't, then we have to bear the consequences of those things. Okay, let's look next at fruit. There's fruit that comes from pride and there's fruit that comes from humility. And you'll see it, Proverbs is a great place to look. First, uh, chapter 11 and verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. So pride leads to dishonor, humility leads to wisdom. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. I think that's the King James that said, pride cometh before the fall, right? So following pride, as you start to walk in pride, you've set yourself on the path towards destruction. Uh, Proverbs 18 and verse 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Again, destruction follows haughtiness or pride. Humility leads to honor. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord, this is Proverbs 22, are riches, honor, and life. There's a consistent pattern that we see in the Proverbs about humility and its honor. Uh, and then Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. 
I read you some of this course of scripture earlier where we talked about considering others more important than ourselves. It says, for this reason also, and we'll see what this reason is in just a minute. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, this is Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So it looks like God rewards the things that he values the most with the greatest rewards. Honor is a very, very, very high reward. Honor is... Oh, gosh, I'm not ready to do this. Honor is so, so attractive, but it only comes biblically from the place of humility. And we'll see in a minute when we talk about humility in Jesus' life that it was that humility that caused God to exalt him to the absolute highest place, the name above every name. He didn't get re-exalted to that place because he was there before. He was exalted to that place because of the humility he displayed in obedience to the Father in the mission that he was given. The name above all names, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Why? Because of humility. So let's look at humility in Jesus' life. Go back to Philippians again in chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now these are the scriptures that precede the scripture that says that God exalted him up to this high place. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, who existed forever, who lived in heaven, worshipped by the angels day and night, this perfect God, Jesus, humbles himself to the point of taking on the form of a man, right? A man that probably could feel pain, that certainly knew temptation because he had to overcome and resist every temptation that any man or woman or child ever did or ever would. Humbles himself to become a man and then not only a man, a bondservant, and then he becomes humble to the point of death, but not even any death, this death that is scourging and on a cross. That's the humility that Jesus displayed. Let's look at some more. In John chapter 13 and verse 5, this Jesus, this Son of God, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he humbled himself to wash the dirtiest part of a person's body, right? They walked through the dusty dirt. Jesus washed their feet. In Matthew 26, verse 67 and 68, this is after Jesus has been um, captured by the, by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So they're, they're beating him, they're spitting in his face, and they're mocking him. In uh, Matthew 27, it goes on to say, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, 
and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put on his own garments, and led him away to crucify him. This is just, this is just no account men to the God of the universe. And in Matthew 26, 53, this is when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This is kind of prior to the last scriptures I read you. <coughs> Judas is bringing these guys, and they're going to capture Jesus. And for some reason, he had Peter bring a sword and then gave him grief for using it. But Peter takes and, you know, he whacks off this guy Malchus's ear with the sword. And Jesus says... Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? He's rebuked him. And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000. So greater than 72,000 angels, Jesus is telling Peter, you didn't have to do that. Don't you understand that if if I wasn't going to walk this thing out, I could have just said, Dad, send me about six legions of angels down here. 72,000 angels to deal with this mess with these guys that have come in to do this to me. He didn't have to do any of it. He did it because he chose. So then, the questions that that I would have are this. Why does the Son of God come down from his heavenly throne and first become incarnate and not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped? Remember, he stepped away from his divinity, emptied himself of access to that divinity, took the form of a bondservant and, and be made in the likeness of men, humble himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, wash the feet of mere men. Why, when he could muster 72,000 angels to come to his aid, when these guys were doing all these horrible things to him, did he allow them to spit in his face, beat him with their fists, slap him, strip him, press this crown of thorns down into his head, mock him, spit on him again, beat him with a reed, and ultimately crucify him. Why does he do that? Love. And from what did he do it? Humility. Why? Because it's the only way that it could be done. We get to sit here with the assurance of eternal life with God in heaven because humility took God from heaven brought him to earth, subjected him to everything that we would have dealt with for eternity. It was humility that did that. It was the only way that it could be done. He had to humble himself. And because he did, he was exalted to this high place. He was resurrected from the dead and raised up to the right hand of the Father where he sits today. And humility has him still interceding for each and every one of us all day long, praying like he did for Peter. So why then does Jesus tell his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, he says, If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Why did he say that? For the same exact reason. That it's only humility that will cause us to be able to live in right relationship with each other and certainly with right relationship to God. Salvation only comes from humility. You can't from pride 
confess Jesus as Lord and submit your will to his. Pride doesn't submit its will to anybody. Humility submits its will. The reason that we have to walk like Jesus walked, the reason that we have to wash each other's feet just like he demonstrated to us when he washed the feet of the disciples is because that's just the way God ordained it to work. In pride, you won't lead anybody to the Lord. In pride, you won't see the Lord. In pride, you won't experience that presence of God that you need to experience if you're going to serve God. You'll never find the fear of the Lord in pride, only in humility. I don't know about you. People, people it's interesting to me, we, we're, we're afraid of, I know what it is, it's false pride, of, of a desire to be exalted. I, I think God desires that all of us would desire to be exalted and that we would do the things that would cause him to exalt us. See, in the world, there's exaltation is always measured, right? Um, there's the president and the vice president. There's the secretary of state. There's the cabinet member. And, and exaltation is always in relation to somebody else. I want to get higher than this person. I want Because pride wants us to feel good about ourselves. Pride wants the people to reach out their hands and touch us and feel like I'm a god. That's not what God's talking about. God wants us all to be exalted. He wants us all to walk in such power that we really are the light that can't be put under a basket, the city on a hill. Exaltation is something we should all strive for. And the way you strive for exaltation is to humble yourself. I, I've, I've personally prayed for humility. I pray for it almost every single day because I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to get to heaven and have God say, man, you did a really, you know, you did a Saul kind of a 90% job. If it wasn't for that 10% of pride that you wouldn't release, I could have really gotten everything that I had planned for you done. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Every deed, every good work that I had for you got done. And what I've learned, I guess maybe better said, what I'm learning is that in the pursuit of humility, what you find is that the lie that is self my ability in myself, right? I taught myself how to appear able. When I, when I went to work at this corporation, a guy with no education, and everybody had a master's degree from Stanford, I taught myself how to appear fantastic. I can do it all. I carried an air about myself, but it was a false air. See, that confidence in self isn't real. As you pray for humility, what you find is that the failing of self brings an insecurity that you didn't have before because you lived in this lie that was, I'm all that and I can do it. But the fruit of that is that you get the quality that is Christ in me. And scripture says that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's the place that we want to be. I've learned so much about this since God graced me into this spot. Because I walked into this thinking that I was going to be able to do this no problem. Oh my gosh. You know, you sit here every week. You know, <laughs> you, you know that, that I don't have any abilities of myself. And the ones I thought I had were in that thing at the beginning. That, that, that confidence in self that's a lie. And I'm walking through this thing as he shows me each and every part of me that's not submitted to him. That I'm holding up in pride 
that he has to bring down in humility so that he can then lift it back up in Christ. That's the goal. Amen. Bless your heart. Thank you. So stand with me for just a minute and let's just pray. Matter of fact, if you want to make a statement and come down here to the front, come down here to the front. God, I just, I pray in Jesus' name that we will not resist your humility. That there is power in humility and we need power. We need the sickness to bow. I hear footsteps. Good. Thank you, Daniel. I I would ask, I'm going to pray, but I would ask you to pray. Out loud if you're brave enough uh, to yourself if you don't want to. Your prayer for humility. Your recognition that God's way is the right way. That that his word is a lamp unto our feet. And his word teaches us that humility is the way to relationship with him. It's the way to relationship with one another. And it's the absolute foundational way to Christ-likeness. While you're praying, I want to tell you that it's way better to humble yourself than to be humbled by God. But you are going to find there are places in your life that you don't know you're proud. And it isn't going to be pleasant. But I promise you, if you'll persevere through those trials, you will come out with such a sense of Christ in me that you'll know that all things are possible with God and all things are possible to him who believe. And that you never had much to offer in the beginning but you have everything to offer as you surrender yourself to Jesus in humility. Continue to pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke a spirit of fear. Any person that would be afraid of the humility that you offer us, Lord, I just break that spirit of fear now in Jesus' name. I command you, spirit of fear, to be silent in Jesus' name. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your presence. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would take and just wring every drop of pride out of our hearts, Lord. Make such a place for your humility, your grace to come. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you set such an example for us, Lord. How many of us, if we had the opportunity to call down 72,000 angels, would have allowed any man to spit in our face, to jam down that thorn thing into our head? That's the humility that I want, Lord. I want a, a humility that just refuses to take offense. A humility that recognizes, God, that what you did, that we might have the opportunity for relationship with you. What you did was so great that there's no offense that we can take. I take offense and I put it right at your feet for all of us, Lord Jesus. Right at the foot of your cross. I just praise your name. I just praise your name and I thank you so much. I know it's hard. I know it's so counter to everything that the world teaches us. It's so important. Thank you, God. And I declare that we will be a humble church and we will serve you in humility, that we will 
as you lead us through your wonderful Holy Spirit, we'll surrender those things to you that aren't like you, and you'll replace them with those things that are. We'll be a mighty and a powerful church, church on the street, church every place. Every place that is your church, Lord, will be mighty, and we will be light, and we will be different from the world, and we will draw men unto you, to your glory. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. We're going to talk about holiness pretty soon. Humility is a foundation for holiness because holiness is to be set apart. It's to be different. It's to, whether the desire in the flesh exists or not, for things that God would set himself, right? God is totally holy. He's absolutely holy. That means he is set apart from anything that's not holy. And as we learn those things that God would never participate in because holiness doesn't live there, we're going to be challenged. And it's humility that will carry us to the place of holiness because it'll be submitted to God and his will. And I promise you, I just promise you, if you want to go there, you will. You just will. And I just want to encourage you that you're doing good, that if the devil is in your ear and he's trying to tell you otherwise, if he's trying to remind you of things or, or draw you back to a place where you used to be but you're not anymore, don't go there. Don't go there. Because you're awesome and you're wonderful and you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you are knit by the hand of God in your mother's womb to be exactly who you are. He thought more thoughts about you than there are grains of sand on this whole planet and he doesn't make mistakes. So let that be what you leave with today. Knowing that Christ in you, you can do anything and you can be. You know what? It's interesting. We're going to talk about this probably next fall in small groups. There's this book that this guy read about wrote, or wrote about shape. And, and the world says, trying to encourage you, that you can be anybody you want to be, but you can't. You can be everything that God's designed you to be and let that be your goal. You got a word? Yeah? All right. Okay, hang on just a minute. Now you know that if you come up here, you got to hold the microphone, right? Okay. Here you go. Um, my word actually came during worship and... I usually try to tell someone else and they, they say it for me, but Jessica wouldn't. Um, a lot of times when I worship, I think of things that I've done wrong in the week and um, things that I've said wrong to other people, especially other believers, usually my family. And then I think of things I could do to fix it, you know, like what I could apologize for. And then I think, oh, God, forgive me. I'm thinking about myself again. And I was doing that today. And God said, Rebel, no. You're ministering to my body when you're thinking of what you can do to fix things in the relationships, what you can say. And I didn't get up and say it, and I really felt like you wanted me to say it while we were worshiping, that that's the time it's okay to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have yelled at my daughter today, or maybe I shouldn't have said that to my husband, or maybe I should apologize to that friend. And I had no idea what Pat was going to speak of. And then I, I still wrestled with God like I wasn't going to say it, and then because I don't want there's a part of me that's always been kind of power hungry. I like to talk a lot. And then I think, oh, I don't want to want to be exalted to get up and talk. And then Pat, and I was thinking that when Pat said, and if you ever don't pray to be exalted, then it's false humility. And um, then Jessica told me what kind of what her word was. And I really think that, um, obviously, I'm not trying to speak out against anyone, okay? Because I, 
I know that I am totally not there yet. But before she's when when she said before you respond to what Jessica says, I would just ask you to maybe think about what I had said before you do what she says. And I'm not trying, please don't think that I'm trying to tell you what to do or think I have it all together because I so don't. But I just think that it will, I just think that that's what God might want from us. Maybe I'm wrong here. You guys probably remember in the Bible when, you know, God says, you know, if you have anything against your brother, leave the sacrifice on the altar and go to your brother and take care of it which is exactly what Rebel's talking about. And as for me, um, for about three weeks, maybe even four, I've really been, um, I've never met Debbie, um, but I you know, saw her once in church, and every time Pat's prayed for her and I've been in here, the Holy Spirit has like blindsided me. It's like, whoa, okay, you really love her because it just he just comes really hard on me. And I've really been thinking like, man, we need to pray, we need to pray, we are praying, what are we missing, what else can we do? And in the, in the ancient days, like we're talking pilgrims to about mid-1800s, whenever there's a big deal and they, the people wanted God to move, there wasn't enough food or, you know, there's crisis coming to the nation, they called for a national day of prayer and fasting. And every single time, God moved. And so it, I think what he's asking us to do, and I just kind of mentioned it to Kim, and then I'm like, oh, Dana will pray, and oh, oh, there's Patty, and then like maybe, oh, let's tell the kids. So anyways, tomorrow, whether you choose to fast or not, it doesn't really matter. But if you please pray, because there's something incredibly powerful when the believers come together and they stand united in a prayer request. It's happened over and over and over again in history as our forefathers and so on. And I think what Rebel is saying is, hey, if you have anything in your heart that might block your power of prayer, you know, if you have anything against sister, brother, child, you know, we do sin against our kids, you know, take care of that so that your prayers will be powerful and effective. I say amen. Just turn the slide that little switch and you're good. So if they called for a day of prayer and fasting, then I think fasting does matter. However you might choose to fast, fast tomorrow. Make your flesh hurt a little bit. And pray for Debbie. Pray for God's will in her life. God's will is not cancer. There's a lot of ways if God wanted to bring you to heaven, he could bring you to heaven that doesn't include the people that he loves suffer in the way that Debbie is suffering right now. Okay? It's not his will. Absolutely, I believe that. All right. Well, God, thank you for this wonderful day. I think it's going to be warm out.